We are not Saturday's children. We are not children of darkness. We are children of light. We are Sunday children. We are resurrection children. We are children of the new creation. We're not Saturday's children. We're Sunday's children. Jesus has been raised. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I want you to take your Bibles again this morning. Let's be turning again to the Gospel of Mark. We are coming very, very quickly, rapidly so, to the end of our study of Mark's Gospel. And uh, this morning we want to conclude our study of Mark chapter 15. We want to look at verses 42 through 47, the title of the message, Jesus' Burial as Proof of His Death. I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll pick up in verse 42, let's hear God's Word together. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated and let's bow for prayer. Father, we are grateful for your word. Your word is holy. Your word is true. But Father, we are weak and feeble. We need strength of mind, strength of heart, strength that can only come by the power of your Holy Spirit to understand the significance of Jesus' burial. So Lord, we pray that you would guide us, help us, uphold us as we study your blessed word today. We pray for your glory and our good and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. The history of Christianity has a very rich creedal tradition. The earliest known creed of the church is referred to as the Apostles' Creed. You're familiar with it. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Or if you like, the Nicene Creed, which speaks of Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven. He was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. He was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day, he rose again. From these creeds, it can be seen that the earliest affirmation in Christianity regarded the death and the resurrection of Christ as critical to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But it also emphasizes what happened in between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and that is the burial of Christ. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried before he rose again. He suffered and was buried before rising again the third day. All of this coming, obviously, from Paul's creedal statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I delivered to you that which was of first importance of what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. Commenting on that passage, Martin Luther says, We must notice how Paul adduces Scripture as his strongest proof, for there is no other enduring way of preserving our doctrine and faith than through the physical and written Word of God. 
And that is true. The very death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, was prophesied in the Old Testament. The Old Testament record repeatedly, repeatedly has in the New Testament quoted by the apostles scriptures that point to the death of Jesus, to the burial of Jesus. The prophetical proof of the death of Christ. The historical proof of the death of Christ in the New Testament record, which we read here in the Gospels, which describe in detail what led to Jesus' death. In actual fact, all four Gospels not only record the death of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, but they record what is in between that, and that is the burial of Jesus. But you might ask, why is it so important that we affirm the burial of Jesus? Well, first of all, it is to show that Jesus really died. He really died. Secondly, it is to show that the women who witnessed where Joseph of Arimathea laid Jesus in the tomb could not have gone to the wrong tomb on Sunday morning. They had to have gone to the right tomb because they witnessed on Friday where Jesus was laid. Also, to give eyewitness testimony, not merely to Jesus' resurrection, but also to His death and those who took care of Jesus' corpse post-mortem. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, then the role of the centurion and Pilate who confirmed that Jesus actually died. You know, embalming and burying the dead has a rich Christian tradition. It points to our belief in the resurrection of the body, the reality of eternity, the reality that there is something beyond us. That's why as early as Genesis, Abraham and Jacob were very concerned about the collection of their bones and where they would be buried. And we know from the author of Hebrews that by faith, Abraham was looking to heaven. Calvin says, and I quote, to embalm corpses was done as a public symbol of future incorruption. He says, and I quote, the sacred rite of burial descended from the holy fathers, that is the patriarchs, to be a kind of mirror of the future resurrection. I like that language. Embalming and burial is a mirror of the future resurrection because in the future resurrection, God is going to put you back, to be- back together and make you look better than you looked even when you were alive. And although embalming does that imperfectly, the intent behind that is to give an assertion that we believe in the resurrection. Calvin also says that God watches over the scattered dust of his own children and gathers it up again and will suffer nothing of them to perish. Jesus was very well aware of his anointing. In fact, when his body was anointed with all of that perfume by the woman, she poured it all over his body. And Jesus said that she had, he, she had done that to prepare him for burial. And on that statement, Calvin says, Christ wished to testify by this symbol that his grave would yield a sweet odor as it breathed life and salvation through the whole world. Now it's important to note that Christ's burial does not fit in the exact same category as the resurrection. We emphasize the resurrection because the resurrection was a miracle. The burial of Jesus fits in the category of God's providence. God's decrees. And we know that the Bible affirms the absolute sovereignty of God, showing that He ordains all things and brings all things to pass. Sometimes God intervenes in human history through the use of miracles, such as the parting of the Red Sea or even the darkness of the sky at the cross that we saw last week in verse 33. God sometimes intervenes through miracles, but listen to this God always works through providence. Arranging events and circumstances and the details of your life and my life and the history of the world in a natural way to bring about His purpose for all things and through all things. Miracles are different than providence. They work in accord with providence, but they are different because miracles are the temporary suspension of what we might call laws of nature that God Himself put in place at creation. In contrast, Providence 
Is God working according to the natural processes and even the decisions of man to accomplish his purposes? In other words, God not only ordains the end, but he ordains the means to the end. And so when we speak about providence, we are affirming several things. First of all, we affirm that providence is constant. That is, it is ongoing. It's always at work. John 5, 17. My father is working until now and I am working, Jesus says. Providence is constant. Secondly, providence is calculated. Even down to the last detail and what may appear to be random. The lot is cast into the lap, the Bible says, but it's every decision is from the, the Lord. Proverbs 16, 33. Third, providence is complex. In other words, there's a mystery to it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, Romans 8.28. But we must admit that it's not always clear in the midst of our circumstances, at least to us, what exactly God is up to. There's a mystery to it. MacArthur says that God sovereignly coordinates a near infinite number of contingencies and superintends the behaviors of all His creatures so that all things, including people's choices and actions, ultimately align with His perfect purposes. And God is able to do that in a providential way, which does not make him culpable for sin and does not diminish human responsibility. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Fourth, providence is consistent. That is, it is consistent with God's overall purpose. Psalm 115 and verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 135 and verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. Proverbs 21 verse 30, no wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Isaiah 46, remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Or King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, for his dominion, speaking about God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God does all things, Ephesians 1, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Sixth, God's providence is counteractive. That is, God frustrates the plans of the wicked. Job 5.12, he frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Psalm 33.10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24, a man's steps are what? From the Lord. Or Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And not only that, but God's providence is also considerate. God's providence is merciful for our godliness, for example. Philippians 2:13. for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is considerate for our godliness. He is considerate for our blessedness. Genesis 50 verse 20. Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for my good. God is considerate for our godliness and our blessedness and even our deliverance. In Exodus 14, he delivered Israel from Egypt. In Joshua 10, we read about them going to conquer the promised land and God saying to rest in his strength for he would Make them successful. God is considerate not only to our godliness and blessedness and deliverance, but also our influence. You know the story of Esther. She was raised up to influence her people, to save them from genocide. And Mordecai told Esther, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom of God for such a time as this. Listen, God's providence is constant. It's ongoing. God's providence is calculated down to the last detail. God's providence is complex. You can't understand it. God's uh, providence is consistent, always in accordance with His purposes. God's providence is counteractive, frustrating the plans of the wicked. God's providence is considerate. And lastly, God's providence is controlling. It controls all the events of human history. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water. 
And the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. Just as God raised Cyrus up and put the desire in his heart to allow Israel to return back to Jerusalem from their captivity. I say all of that because we must not, we cannot be sloppy in thinking about or articulating to others the providence of God in particular and the attributes of God in general. As Louis Burkhoff says in his Systematic Theology, the great Reformed writer, the decree of God is in his eternal purpose or plan in which he has ordained all things that come to pass. And Burkhoff says this covers all the works of God in creation and also redemption. It embraces all the actions of men, not excluding sinful deeds. And it exonerates God from being responsible for man's sinful actions. God's decrees are eternal. They're full of wisdom from before the foundation of the world. God's decrees are effectual. Everything in God's decrees come to pass. Not one jot, not one tittle is missing. God's decrees are unchangeable or immutable. Job 23, but He is unchangeable and who can turn Him back? What He desires, that He does. God's decrees are unconditional. The execution of His decrees are not dependent on us, even though He uses our actions and decisions to accomplish them. We are not described in Scripture as robots. We are not hyper-Calvinists. That is an unbiblical, untenable position. God's decrees are eternal, effectual, unchangeable, unconditional, and they're universal. God's decrees embrace both the good and the bad actions and decisions of man. And you say, well, that's inconsistent with the moral freedom of man. No, the Bible clearly teaches not only that God has decreed the free actions of man, but also that man is nonetheless free and responsible for his acts. And furthermore, we not, may not be able to harmonize the two together, but it is evident from the Scripture that the one does not cancel out the other. And we are always responsible for our wickedness. We are always responsible for our sin. God is the author of free moral beings who themselves are the author of their own sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, Jeremiah says? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. He's responsible. So sin is only made certain by God's decree, but God himself does not produce sin as a direct action. This is all ultimately a mystery. This is the best we could do, and it's the best we should try to do. But perhaps divine providence was never more clearly seen than in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have those statements, and I've read them on more than one occasion. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, Peter says, and killed by the hands of lawless men. There is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That's Acts 2 or Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's God's sovereignty, verse 28, human responsibility in verse 27. Pontius Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, the religious leaders, they all knew exactly what they were doing and they did exactly what they wanted to do. It was their decision but Jesus even before his birth God providentially moved in Caesar Augustus's heart to decree a census so that Joseph and Mary were led to Bethlehem to fulfill Micah 5 2 that the Christ child would be born in Bethlehem and so too after his death God providentially orchestrated events so that Jesus's burial listen to this would work in accordance with the prophetic scriptures and not violate or diminish the human responsibility of men who put him to the grave. God providentially directed it all in such a way that evil men are responsible for cruci crucifying Christ. They were not robots. They did exactly what they wanted to do and good people like Joseph of Arimathea did, it exa did exactly what he wanted to do in caring for the body of Jesus and he was completely unaware that he was fulfilling Scripture by doing what he did. All the characters surrounding the cross, both the good and the bad, worked in conjunction with God's plan to providentially bring about your salvation. That is the record of Scripture. Now, in the context, 
We left Jesus hanging on the cross last week. But we noted the fact that the battle is over. The battle is over. Jesus cried, it is finished. The battle cry of Calvary went up. The battlefield is quiet. No more mocks. No more jeers. To tell us die. It is finished. In other words, John 17, the work the Father sent the Son to do has been complete. Satan has been dealt a death blow. The heel has been bruised, but the head will be crushed after darkness comes light. But one commentator tells us we do well not to hurry too soon to the resurrection morning. It is as though after all the tenseness of the packed sequence from Gethsemane to Calvary, there is need for quiet reflection and rest before we are ready to come from the calm of the shady tomb to the joy of the early morning in the garden. And so this morning I want to point your attention to verses 42 through 47 because it shows us simply how Jesus' burial is proof of His death. We've already seen that his burial is one of the three critical components to our creedal tradition and affirming orthodoxy. Jesus was crucified, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose again. He had to be truly buried in order to rise, and he had to truly be dead for him to be buried. And Mark reveals that in these verses. And as the text asserts, God does this by showing how certain characters around the cross fulfill God's decree for the Son to die, for the Son to be buried according to the Scriptures and to rise again three days later. There are simply three facts about Jesus' burial that prove that His death was real. Notice with me number one. The first proof is what I want to call the bold request for Jesus' corpse. The bold request for Jesus' corpse in verses 42 through 43. Note, first of all, when this took place. When was this request? Verse 42, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. When it says, when evening had come, this is the Jewish reckoning of time, when evening began really at 3 p.m. and it ended at 6 p.m., Basically, so that 6 p.m. on Friday was considered the beginning of the Sabbath. But since Mark also says in verse 42 that it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, we know that that Joseph of Arimathea requests the corpse of Jesus before 6 p.m. And if he hurries, he could lay Jesus' corpse in the tomb before the Sabbath began, which it began at 6 o'clock and thus not violate the Sabbath. The Sabbath was from 6 p.m. on Friday to 6 p.m. on Saturday. That was the Jewish reckoning of time. So he has until 6 o'clock. Now the darkness was there from 12 to 3. So he's got three hours to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And notice how Mark sort of tongue-in-cheek says this is the day of preparation. Of course it was. Preparing for the Sabbath, also preparing for the Passover. But this was the most important preparation day Because the next day would be the last Sabbath, and on this day, Joseph would be preparing Jesus' corpse for burial. Deuteronomy chapter 21 had a stipulation. Um, It would do well for you to turn over there with me just briefly to Deuteronomy chapter 21, so you can see it with your own eyes. Verse 22, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Jesus was cursed, hanging from a tree. Jewish law stipulated the removal of the hanging of that body, So it wouldn't desecrate the land. And you had to do it that day. Such would not be easy, by the way. There were substantial obstacles from a purely human perspective that faced squarely against Joseph. First of all, he had no help. You haven't forgotten the fact that the disciples fled, have you? You haven't forgotten the fact that um, the women have fled. We saw that last week. They were there at the cross for a while. They fled. John was at the cross. He came back briefly to see them pierce Jesus in the side with a spear. Jesus' mother is not around. Jesus' siblings aren't around. 
Joseph is all by himself. He has no help. Secondly, Jesus was accused of treason. And normally, the, the Roman government would work in conjunction with the Jewish law of Deuteronomy chapter 21 and allow them to remove the body from uh, the cross. Even pious women in Jerusalem would remove non-Jews so that uh, the land wouldn't be desecrated. But he would be very unlikely... Pilate would, very unlikely to allow a condemned criminal who was an enemy of the state, who was accused of treason, um, to be off that cross, because third, Roman crucifixion served as a deterrent to others. It was located next to a major highway so that passers-by could have a warning sent to them that this could happen to them if they broke Roman law. This is sort of similar, I guess, to World War II when SS officers, it was very common for them to dangle hanging bodies, corpses in the middle of town, um, non-Jews that they would hang because a particular German or Polish person or whoever it may have been was hiding a Jew or helping a Jew to escape. And they had betrayed the Third Reich. And as a deterrent, they would hang him in the middle of the town. Well, this is when this request took place. Verse 42, on Good Friday. But notice... Who makes the request? We've already mentioned it, but notice the beginning of verse 43. Mark simply describes him as Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Now, Arimathea, the best we can tell, uh, is a reference to Ramah. You can go back to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 1. This was the city of Samuel. It was also referred to as Ramathene Zophim. It was located in the, the land that was given to the tribe of Ephraim. The modern-day town is Rentus, which is about 22 miles northwest of Jerusalem. He was either from this place, Arimathea, or he lived there. We really don't know. But the most important thing is not where he was from, but who he was. Who was this man? Well, first of all, he was a man of principle. While Jesus' disciples deserted Jesus, including his corpse, this man cared enough for the body of Jesus to want to do something. This is especially relevant considering he had a lot to lose because secondly, he, he was not only a man of principle, but he was a man of power. He had clout. Verse 43 says he was, notice it, a respected member of the council. He wasn't just any member of the council, but a respected member. Uskemon, a prominent member, a reputable member, an honorable member. And he wasn't powerful merely because of his position on the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. It wasn't merely his position, it was his pockets. Matthew 27, 57 tells us that he was a rich man. So he's laying his money on the line. He's laying his life on the line. He's laying his position on the line. In fact, his power is so great. Here's an interesting thought. We are very familiar with Nicodemus, who we're going to see was associated with Joseph of Arimathea to prepare Jesus' body. We know more about Nicodemus because of John 3. But I think that, uh, and by the way, Nicodemus was on the council as well. But I think Joseph of Arimathea was even a more prominent member than Nicodemus. Because all four Gospels mention Joseph of Arimathea. Only John mentions Nicodemus. So this is a man of great power. He was wealthy. He had a position. And Jesus, of course, warned about earthly riches in his ministry. He came preaching to the poor, but obviously we learn here that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus prove as rich people that rich people have access to the kingdom of God like everyone else. And there are many rich people in the Bible like Abraham and Barnabas and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And people like the mother of John Mark who wrote this gospel. People like Lydia, even those like Ananias and Sapphira who were wealthy. But the Bible teaches that all rich people who know the riches of God's grace are generous in their giving. You could put it this way. Those who know the riches of God's grace are gracious with their own riches. And that was certainly true with this man. But Joseph of Arimathea was not only a man of principle and a man of power, he was a man of purity. He sat on the council that condemned Jesus, but apparently he did not vote in favor of crucifying Jesus. I mean, after all, perhaps he was not even there. He was absent and wasn't even at the meeting. Maybe he was present but abstained. Maybe he was present and voted against it, although I, I think that's probably unlikely. What we do know is if you turn with me over to Luke chapter 23, we find a very, very interesting fact about Joseph of Arimathea. I don't want this to escape your notice. 
In verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, that is the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin. And notice it says he was a good and righteous man. He was pure. And verse 51 says he had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. He didn't agree with putting Jesus to death. By the way, what was it that made him such a pure man? Well, Matthew 27 verse 57 refers to him as a disciple of Jesus. Not an apostle, but a disciple, a follower of Jesus. John 19.38 says he was a disciple of Jesus secretly out of fear of the Jews. And we know there were others. John 12.42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. He was a disciple of Jesus secretly. But we not only see here in this bold request for Jesus' corpse when he requested it and who he was, but what motivated him to do it? Back in Mark chapter 15, verse 43 says that he himself was looking, that is Joseph of Arimathea, verse 43, for the kingdom of God. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Well, what was it that Jesus preached? John 1, 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came in Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He had repented and believed in the gospel. He had heard Jesus preach. And he was looking, moreover, as verse 43 says, for the kingdom of God. That is, he was looking for the reign of God in the person of Christ. Now, it wasn't out of the norm for any pious Jew to look for the kingdom of God. But he's looking for the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus. He saw Jesus of Nazareth as the messianic hope, the long-awaited hope. God had already began a work in his heart to copy Paul's words in Philippians 1.6. And you can be sure that God would be faithful to bring it to completion. He knew that Jesus had been crucified. He realized that as a secret disciple, frightened earlier to say something, apparently after Jesus dies, he comes to his senses and he says, you know what, I can no longer be silent like I was in those council meetings. And so he makes a decision to expose his identity as a follower of Jesus to boldly make himself vulnerable before powerful Pilate No longer would he keep his faith to himself. He would reveal all of the cards, no matter what the cost may be. Why was he willing to do this? Well, because like all Christians, although he failed egregiously, he had a conscience. And he was convicted. He thought back how he saw how Jesus was innocent, yet falsely accused, and he said nothing. He thought back about how he heard Pilate's words that he was innocent. Pilate, not even a believer in Jesus. He saw everything. He heard everything. He felt the sincerity of Jesus as the mockers mocked Jesus on the cross. And Jesus didn't revile back, but he said to the thief, Today you'll be with me in paradise. His silence was just like the scurrying disciples and running women. It was a moral failure. In the closing hours of Jesus' life. Because here's the reality, folks. There is no evidence that suggests he tried to save Jesus. He didn't try to save Jesus. His silence indirectly led to Jesus' crucifixion. And I want to go back to what I said at the beginning. God worked his silent sin out for your good and for my good. This is providence using the actions of his sinful silence so that Jesus could go to the cross and secure our redemption. Now mark my words, he was fully responsible for his sin. And obviously, he was convicted about it because he went to make himself vulnerable before Pilate. His knowledge is limited, but because God has decreed the free actions of man, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, is nonetheless responsible for his actions. His knowledge is limited, but his faith apparently is strong. He believes Jesus will resurrect. 
The most pious of Jews believed in a resurrection. Now, I don't think that he believed Jesus was going to be resurrected on Sunday. He didn't have that knowledge. But he viewed the embalming of Jesus' body as a kind of mirror for a future resurrection, and he knew he was the Messiah, and he knew he must be raised again someday. This man had faith. But the when of the request and the who of the request, who made it, and what motivated it takes us to how it happened. Notice the rest of verse 43. It says he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. He did this boldly. You can think of it this way. He had stepped back at Jesus' trial and now he steps forward to request Jesus' body and to associate with Jesus. This was, listen to me, an immensely risky move. That's why Mark says, notice the text, he took courage to do this. Why was this courageous? Well, for one, Pilate was the very man who sent Jesus to his execution. And he had far more power than Joseph of Arimathea. He might have been a prominent member of the council. Pilate had the power of the sword. Secondly, a body of a condemned treasonous criminal was considered property of the state. What right do you have going before the civil magistrate to request the body? Third, Pilate hated the Jews, especially the council of the Sanhedrin, of which Joseph was a prominent member. And fourth, Joseph was showing sympathy with a man who was considered enemy of the state, who had committed treason, a rival to Caesar himself, You see, this would flag not only the Roman authorities to say, wait a second, why is Joseph of Arimathea aligning himself and associating himself and sympathizing with this dead traitor? And secondly, he would flag himself to the religious leaders. He could easily be kicked off the council. Who do you think you are representing us before Pilate asking for the body of Jesus? Mark it, this is openly a profession to the entire world by his request for Jesus' corpse, a, a, a request and a profession before the Gentiles, the Romans, and before the Jews, the religious leaders, that he loved Jesus and was a follower of Jesus. He's coming out of the closet. Why else would he request the body of Jesus? And you remember that condemned criminals hanging dead was a point of principle. So others saw it. Those bodies were finally removed and they were symbolically tossed in the garbage dump of the city known as Gehenna. That was the place Jesus used as a metaphor for hell. But like Esther in the Old Testament, God had prepared Joseph and brought him to the kingdom for such a time as this. And he took courage Tall Mesos, verse 43, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The Greek word literally means to dare or to be bold. And there is no doubt in my mind that as Mark writes this gospel, he's writing to Roman Christians who are being persecuted by a hostile Roman government. And he is pointing to Joseph of Arimathea to say this is the example we follow. When others deny Jesus in their silence and stand down, as Joseph of Arimathea did before Jesus died, we must stand up as Joseph of Arimathea did after Jesus died. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross, lift high His royal banner. It must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, His army shall He lead till every foe is vanquished. And Christ is Lord indeed. Joseph went from a secret disciple to an open disciple. He went from a closet disciple to a courageous disciple. He went from standing down to standing up. And here is the reality to apply to your life. As soldiers of Christ, we aren't to stand down. As soldiers of Christ, we aren't to stand down. We are to stand up. And standing up means that we stand firm. 
And when we stand up and stand firm, it means that we need to speak out. And when we speak out, we stand out, and it may mark us by the world, and it may cost us our lives, but you cannot be a half-hearted Christian. You must be a whole-hearted Christian, trusting in the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the vindication of Christ, rising from the dead, ascending to the right hand of God, enthroned above every civil magistrate that has ever existed. And here is Joseph of Arimathea throwing the keys down and saying, here I am, do with me what you want, but I will align myself with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's burning the boats. That was a common thing that military generals did. For example, in 1519, the Spanish explorer Cortez landed 11 ships on the Yucatan shore with 500 sailors to capture a treasure belonging to the Aztecs. And the soldiers didn't want to fight. They didn't trust his leadership. They were greatly outnumbered. And so Cortez burned their boats. He said, you're not going back now. You either fight and survive or you die. A thousand years earlier, Alexander the Great, we're all familiar with him. He arrived on the Persian shores and did the same thing. He ordered that the ships be burned. This is Joseph of Arimathea being courageous. He's burning the boats. He had stood down, now he's standing up. He was a closet disciple, now he's a courageous disciple. And no matter how hostile civil authorities might be to the church, we must never be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who, who believe, to the Jew first and also the Greek. But back now to Mark's main point, God had orchestrated Joseph of Arimathea demonstrating this boldness to request Jesus' corpse because, listen to this, this was a matter of fulfilling prophecy. Now hang with me. Turn back to Matthew chapter 12. This is really the point that I want you to see from the first point. And then we'll move on. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, Jesus says, An evil... An adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is that? Well, Jesus explains, verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is drawing a parallel with this allegory to say just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, he's going to be three days in the tomb. So this is not coincidence, this is providence that Joseph acted as fast as he did to get Jesus' body and to bury it on Friday before 6 o'clock. There's also other Old Testament prophecies like Hosea 6.2, which originally was a reference to I, um, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, that God would raise them after three days. Clearly being applied, however, and fulfilled in Jesus, the true Israelite, the second Adam, the federal or covenantal head of God's new creation, God's new race, God's elect people. He would be raised. And perhaps third, Mark points this out, that this bold request was made on Friday, on the day of preparation, because the Jews had this mystical, really strange belief. They believed that after someone died, the soul of that person lingered around the body for two days before finally departing on the third day. This was folklore. But God providentially allowed Joseph to get the corpse of Jesus so that Jesus would be in the grave Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's three days beyond the myth, mythological idea that the soul would linger for two and leave after three. But this now leads us to the second fact about Jesus' burial. Paul says, I deliver to you that which is of first importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. What is the second proof that Jesus really died? First is the bold request for Jesus' corpse. Second is the backed reception of Jesus' corpse. Verses 44 and 45. And here we see that 
surprisingly maybe, Pilate backed Joseph of Arimathea's request by giving the corpse to Jesus. But notice first the incredulous attitude, the beginning of verse 44. It says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. In other words, when Joseph of Arimathea goes to request the corpse, first of all, he's probably surprised that this member of the council would ask for it. Secondly, he's surprised that, why are you asking for it now? Usually, executed criminals on a cross were alive for two or three days, gasping for air. The wording in verse 44, he was surprised to hear that he should have already died, means that he had sent the centurion to go check on whether Jesus was dead. But he had received no formal word. As it turns out, Pilate was, in fact, sensitive to the Jewish Sabbath observance and getting those bodies down. Um, Over in John chapter 19, it's good to see all these accounts uh, by the other gospel writers. In John chapter 19 and verse 31, we read, since it was the day of preparation, And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day because it was Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other. Those were the thieves who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, John 19.33, they did not break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear And at once there came out blood and water. That's an indication of death. Fulfilling Psalm 34.20, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Fulfilling Zechariah 12.10, all who pierced him will mourn. Fulfilling Exodus 12.46, Numbers 9.12, which said, listen to this, the little Passover lambs that you sacrifice at Passover cannot have broken bones. You see the detailed sovereignty of God? I mean, the reality is these soldiers are just doing their job. They had done this countless times over. And yet God was orchestrating all of this, even underscoring the most minor detail, the most what appears to be, to be insignificant detail to show God's sovereignty over all of this. And so obviously you see the incredulous attitude of Pilate, but then that leads into the investigative asking in verse 44. It says, And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. Now that's the same centurion of verse 39. Back in verse 39 of... Mark 15, when the centurion who stood facing him, that is Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this was the Son of God. You remember the legend that said the centurion traveled with Joseph of Arimathea overseas. They became friends. Pilate is so surprised that before formally granting the corpse, He calls for this centurion, this formal investigation. He questions him, and of course the centurion says what verse 39 says. I was facing Jesus. I saw him breathe his last. He really died. 1 Corinthians 15. I deliver to you which is of first importance. What I received, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Pilate confirms his death through the centurion who was an eyewitness that says he breathed his last. By the way, some wrongly suggest that Jesus didn't really die, he just swooned on the cross. He swooned on the cross and later in the cool of the tomb he revived. But there were witnesses, right? Joseph who had contact with Jesus' corpse. Pilate, who received word from the centurion, who was an eyewitness. The women who watched Jesus being laid in the tomb. And not only that, but it is very interesting, verse 45 uses the word corpse. It's a a different word than the word used for the body of Jesus earlier um, in the text. It is the Greek word toma, which means corpse. Even the literal word means Jesus was dead. 
And I might also hasten to say that out of all the hundreds of thousands of crucified victims under the Roman kingdom throughout the centuries, there is not one, not one written record of anybody surviving this. It may have been a slow death because of dehydration, exposure to the hot sun during the day, exposure to the cold weather at night. It might have been a slow death because uh, of asphyxiation, suffocation, and once the legs were broken, they couldn't lift their body up to breathe. But chapter 16, we'll get to it next week, this was no resuscitation, this was a resurrection. Pilate knew it, Joseph knew it, the centurion knew it, the women knew it. And the incredulous attitude followed by the investigative asking then leads to the immediate approval. Verse 45, notice your Bibles. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. He had seen a lot of people die, but none like this. This centurion was struck, wasn't he? What did he say in verse 39? Truly, This man was the Son of God. That is not merely a statement of shock. That is a statement of regret that he had participated in killing God's Son, the Messiah. And notice how Pilate trusts him, gives immediate approval, because this was an officer, it's a centurion, over 100 soldiers. You didn't get that position by not having integrity. This man, some level of integrity. Now he's a true convert. He has double integrity, and he says, yeah, I was there. Jesus is dead. And so Pilate gives his immediate approval to Joseph to take that corpse down from the cross, to transport it to the tomb, and to begin the embalming process. Why? 1 Corinthians 15. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. But this then leads to the third and final fact, that Jesus really died. First, we've seen the bold request for the corpse of Jesus. Second, the backed reception of the corpse of Jesus. Now third, the beloved respect or regard to Jesus' corpse. This respect or regard is seen in a couple of ways. First of all, in the way he was buried. Verse 46, and Joseph, it says, bought a linen shroud. We'll just stop right there for a moment. We read in John chapter 19, that after he bought that, together with Nicodemus, who was also a rich man, and also a member of the Sanhedrin, that these two prominent members of the Jewish Supreme Court tenderly remove Jesus' corpse from the cross and wrap him in this linen shroud. So tender. They bought a linen shroud. They taking him down, verse 46, they wrapped him in the linen shroud and they laid him in the tomb. They wrapped around Jesus' body really essentially cloth strips that were packed with aromatic spices of great value. That was to neutralize the odor caused by decomposition. But the expense that Joseph paid for these spices reveals his deep regard for Jesus. And verse 46 says, they laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. I won't go into the detail, but the other gospel writers tell us this wasn't just any tomb, it was an unused tomb. And John 19.41 says it was located in a garden. We don't know exactly where it is today. But it was common for Jews not to bury in the ground, but to bury in caves or tombs that they quarried out of hillsides. Bodies were forbidden to be buried within 75 feet of the city walls of Jerusalem. So we know he was buried outside of the city walls. Later tombs were reused again. After decomposition, the bones were collected and housed in ossuaries. But verse 46, this is what I want you to see, closes by saying, it was um, a tomb cut out of a rock, the end of verse 46, and he rolled a stone Joseph of Arimathea did against the entrance of the tomb. This was some sort of large rock. And I believe it was uh, the type similar to like a millstone. Fancy tombs actually had 
channels that were created that sloped down to the entrance so that a rock could be rolled into place into the entrance. Very difficult to remove because you'd have to push that rock uphill through the channels. A couple of noteworthy things. Joseph and Nicodemus, although they tenderly showed respect to Jesus' corpse, they had to act quickly. Remember, it's the day of preparation. they got to do this before nightfall, before six. And so it is amazing to me they took the time to wrap his body with hastily, in some sense, but with expensive spices, to sort of tie Jesus' corpse over until the women could embalm him later, because really, it was a woman's job. And here, they take the woman's job. They have such love and regard for Jesus. They can't help but go buy some spices, wrap it in cloth, do what they can, get Jesus in the tomb. By the way, Matthew 26 verse 60 indicates that Joseph originally carved this tomb for himself. That's deeply symbolic. That has deep theological significance. You mean to tell me that God sovereignly carved out a spot for Joseph, giving him a place in the kingdom of God by dying on the cross as a substitute, and then Joseph carved out of a rock a tomb for Jesus to be placed to be his substitute, and then Jesus was raised for Joseph from Joseph's tomb to give him life and to give all of God's elect people life? Yeah, that's how sovereign God is. That's exactly what happened. Fulfilling Isaiah 53.9, by the way, which says they made his grave with the wicked. Well, he was in between two criminals, wasn't he? He died right there on the cross among two wicked people, one that converted, but originally wicked people. But the second half of Isaiah 53.9, and with a rich man in his death, crucified between criminals, but with a rich man in his death. You're telling me Isaiah prophesied that? Before it happened, hundreds of years, yeah, he did. Not only that, but we know that Jesus' burial was a burial fit for a king because kings were buried in rock-cut garden tombs with spices. I really don't think Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus had any clue about these prophecies. There was massive ignorance of Scripture because of the Pharisees and their tradition over Scripture. But they're fulfilling prophecy. They're doing what they want to do, and yet they're operating according to God's sovereignty. Humanly speaking, Joseph was trying to make up for his lack of boldness, but in doing so, he fulfilled prophecy. Divinely speaking, God arranged all of this to fulfill every detail concerning the burial of Christ. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb. What was the human plan? Well, the human plan was to dump Jesus' corpse in Gehenna with all the rest of the criminals. But no, Jesus would be associated with a convert in his tomb. A sinner saved by grace, Joseph of Arimathea. Because like Esther, he had come to the kingdom Joseph of Arimathea had for such a time as this. For Jesus, the king of the world, to be buried like a king and to rise triumphantly and to save his people from eternal death and genocide of Satan beautiful how the scriptures come together all of this by the way fulfilled before 6 p.m the women in verse 47 are witnesses to this so we see the way jesus was buried but no also the witnesses verse 47 mary magdalene and mary the mother of Josie, saw where he was laid you know what that means it means it wasn't dark yet they could see over and over and over again jesus said This is what I've come to do. Mark 8, 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and after three days rise again. Mark 10, 33. See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to Gentiles. They'll mock Him, spit on Him, flog Him, kill Him. And after three days, He will rise again. Wow. God's sovereignty working alongside of human actions and decisions. It's interesting, that word Saul in verse 47 
Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw. It's the word, um, it's the orin. It's the same word used in verse 40, which says the women were looking from a distance. This is in, intentional watching and observing, no doubt grieving. These women would return Luke twenty three fifty six on Sunday to finish the embalming, except for the fact that they would be surprised because after the darkness of Jesus' death would come the light of the resurrection. Let me just say this. Verse 47 is proof that those women went to the right tomb on Sunday morning. The religious leaders also knew where Jesus was buried. They stationed guard there. And if Jesus' followers had gone to the wrong tomb and were mistaken, don't you think the religious leaders would have pointed that out? They didn't. Ray Steadman, a preacher of the last 40 years or so, and other preachers refer to our current times as times of darkness. I guess there's a sense in which that's true because there's darkness all around us. But that's only true for those who are still in their sins, right? Those who have no hope of life after death. Those who have no hope of heaven and forgiveness. We are children of light. Christ's kingdom has dawned. Jesus has been resurrected. We are a new humanity. We are not Saturday's children. We are not children of darkness. We are children of light. We are Sunday children. We are resurrection children. We are children of the new creation. We're not Saturday's children. We're Sunday's children. Jesus has been raised. But the point to see before we get to the resurrection next week is this. Both Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea had to answer a very important question. And it goes back to the question Pilate asked. What shall I do with the man called the king of the Jews? Pilate answered wrongly. Joseph answered rightly. There was such a deep regard and love for Jesus, even after his moral failure, that he did all that he could to demonstrate that love to the corpse of Jesus. He had faith Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. He understood that the Messianic kingdom was coming. He understood that after darkness comes light. But you know, that same question faces all of us. What do we do with the man called the king of the Jews? If he's just a man and the resurrection didn't take place, then that means nothing. We can close our Bibles, go home, and never come back. But if he is the God-man, if he is the one that was sent from heaven to die in your place, to be buried, and to raise again, then we cling to this word. We trust in the promises of this word no matter how dark the culture might be around us because we know the reality is, is that Jesus is reigning. After darkness light has come, we are resurrection Sunday children and we glory in that. Next week, we'll see the record of Jesus' resurrection. Father, we thank you for these scriptures. Lord, it is often that we sort of rush over the burial of Jesus. We go from the crucifixion, skip over the burial, and go right to the resurrection. But we must understand the significance of the burial of Jesus. It is creedal. That is to say, it is one-third of our orthodoxy. That Paul delivers to the church what he received. That which is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And number three, that he rose again the third day. He really did die. And yet he didn't see decay and corruption because you raised him from death. Lord, we pray that we might come to grips with the reality of 
being raised from our deadness and sins and trespasses, especially if someone's here today that doesn't know Christ. May they look to Him in faith. May they repent no matter what their moral failing may be, just like Joseph of Arimathea. May they come to regard and love Jesus and embrace Him for the gift that He is for sinners like us. We thank You for this opportunity to observe the Lord's table. We pray that You would bless us as we do it, as Brother John plays old rugged cross and we quietly meditate upon this glorious hymn prepare our hearts as we confess our sins and we glorify jesus christ our savior and king we pray in jesus name amen i hope this sermon from god's word has ministered to your soul for more information about our church you can visit our website www.christreformedcc.com Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.